Welcome to Profiles from WFIU. I'm Aaron Kane. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and public figures to get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is Christopher Raphael. He leads something of a double life, or at least a life where the arts and the sciences intermingle happily and productively. Christopher Raphael heads the Music Informatics program in the School of Informatics, Computing, and Engineering at Indiana University. He also holds appointments in the Cognitive Science program, the Department of Statistics, and the Jacobs School of Music. Christopher Raphael is a musician. He plays the oboe. At the age of 17, he won the San Francisco Symphony Young Artist Competition. He continued to study music and played principal oboe in the Santa Cruz Symphony. He held a fellowship to Tanglewood and has performed in many recitals and chamber music performances. But while walking his musical path, he also began serious mathematical studies, eventually getting a PhD in applied mathematics from Brown University. After that, he worked on a wide range of problems, both in the industry and academia, including character recognition, magnetic resonance spectroscopy, and even mind detection, before once again focusing on music. When it comes to music and technology, it may feel like things couldn't be any more cutting edge right now. Just about any piece of music can be streamed digitally on demand. There are vast online databases of scanned sheet music. Professional musicians are reading their musical scores off of digital tablets. Computers are even writing pieces of music. And in spite of all that, Christopher Raphael says when it comes to music, we're still stuck in the last century. And he's working on changing that. Christopher Raphael, welcome to Profiles. Thanks so much for having me. So first, let's establish your street cred here, because uh, you are a proper musician. We're going to talk about your capacity as a scientist, as a mathematician, but also you won the San Francisco Symphony Young Artist Competition. You soloed with the SFO at 17. So you you know whereof you speak when it comes to music. You're not speaking in the abstract. So I want to get that out of the way. When you started out, what got you first? Was it music or was it more scientifically-minded pursuits? Oh, my first love was music, without a doubt. I wanted to be an oboist, and I wanted this with all my heart. You mentioned the thing about the San Francisco Symphony. I, I went to music school. I studied the oboe with Ray Still, who played principal oboe in the Chicago Symphony for uh, a great many years. I was a fellow at Tanglewood, and at some point, I decided that it might be a good idea to get a day job or a backup plan. <laughs> you wouldn't be and, the first musician to do that. Well, okay, but at this point, still, all of my best energy was going into music making, and even when I left music school before graduating, but had no doubt that I still wanted to be a musician. I, I never questioned this. It was just a practical decision. So I, I went to uh, the University of California at Santa Cruz, I played in the Santa Cruz Symphony there. I was still, still, the truth of the matter is my best energy was all going in, into the oboe. I soloed with the orchestra twice. It was the main thing that I was doing. But while I was there, I got an undergraduate degree in computer science. And lo and behold, just by accident, 
I got interested in the subject. That was never really the plan. It was always a practical decision. I knew that computers were taking off. This would be a good thing to know a little bit about. But it was my backup. But I got very interested in the backup. And at some point uh, after I finished my undergraduate, I went to graduate school and applied math. And all this time, I'm still playing the oboe very seriously, although my professional aspirations are dwindling. It was clear at some point that as much as I love music and music making and found the whole thing just deeply rewarding, somehow it was not the right role for me. It was just there are things about it were hard for me, and also there were these things that I loved to do that somehow weren't being expressed through it. I knew that when I started my PhD in applied mathematics, I, I was more on, on the right track for me. Uh, but the whole time I was in graduate school, I was still playing the oboe very seriously. Okay, so I played in the, uh, the Brown University Orchestra, and I soloed with them, which was a, a, a minor thing. But every summer I would practice really hard, and I had uh, the one serious musical contact left in my life was the Bear Valley Festival Orchestra. It's this, uh, oh, it was the Sacramento Symphony Players, their summer home in, in the Sierras, really beautiful place and a delightful festival. Oh, we played. It was very intense. There were five orchestra programs, an opera, chamber music program, all in the space of two weeks. So we worked very hard. So it was good for me to at least every year practice very seriously and and recapture uh, most of what I had. At some point, well, I finished my, my PhD, and I had to get a little bit more serious uh, about my life. You had to get serious about one of the two, because I wish I had some psychotherapy chops, because a couple of times just now you were talking about your passion for music, and one word also kept coming up, which was practical. And mm -hmm. if I had any psychotherapy chops, I'd probably say, ah, this is the crux of the matter with this gentleman, because here's a passionate musician who has always made a lot of room in his heart for practical matters. And this seems to go to the heart of a lot of your life's work so far. Oh, it makes me sad to hear you say that. Well, to be reductive, I'm sorry, I don't mean to, see, this is why I shouldn't be a psychotherapist, because I have no idea what I'm doing. But uh, now you are the head of music informatics program at the School of Informatics, Computing, and Engineering here at Indiana University. So I need help. I need you to define informatics for me, because I think it comes from a German term, from a guy named Karl uh, Steinbuch, which mm -hmm. uh, is interesting. I guess that means stone book. That's kind of funny because it was kind of taken to mean computer science back mm -hmm. when he coined the term in 56. But I think informatics has come to describe the science of automating information interactions. Is that near to the mark or how would you define it? Oh, I think that's good enough. Uh, we discussed this at great length in the early days of the school, trying to formulate a definition of informatics. Ultimately, it didn't matter so much. The mission of the school was clear. You know, we, computer science is a huge part of the school. And in particular, we specialize in what you might call computing plus X. 
things that, uh, well, bioinformatics is maybe one of the most wonderful examples, but things where one applies computing or statistics or mathematics or some combination of these things to some other discipline. And this is where, where the magic happens. Gosh, not to be reductivist again, but isn't that everything now? Nowadays, isn't everything computing plus X? Well, it's most everything, yeah. Um, I suppose there are some things that are still holding out a little bit. Um, maybe it's my ignorance, um, but most everything is touched by computing now. Music informatics then. So when it becomes computing plus music, your training, your interests. I mean, it looks like those Venn diagrams have been overlapping for some time. You've said that music has not really entered the 21st century, despite the fact that technology is all around us to an extent that might seem like magic. Being able to access any kind of music you can think of and hear it on some streaming platform or other in the blink of an eye is not the same thing as saying that music has entered the 21st century to you. So what do you mean by that exactly? Well, I meant that in a very specific sense. I mean, of course, music is very much a part of the 21st century. What I meant about that was the way that we deal with printed music. You know, reading is now largely electronic, and there are great advantages to doing this. You download things instantly. Uh, You have records of things that you read. They're easy to search. Text documents are easy to analyze automatically. And for the most part, music is still done with printed music. And I think that's really too bad. I mean, I'm sure at some point in the future, musicians will use musical equivalents, digital music stands, or whatever you might call them. And these will be liberating for musicians. We see a lot of people already using a foot pedal with an iPad and turning pages this way. But there are all sorts of other things that can happen that Some of them are analogous to the things one does with text, but, uh, you know, of course, they turn pages automatically, but maybe more interesting than that, you maybe would get some helpful feedback about how you're playing, maybe noting what's going on with your intonation or or monitoring your practice habits over time. Um, All sorts of really interesting things could happen if we did uh, music in a way analogous to the e-book. You're listening to Profiles. From WFIU, I'm Aaron Kane. My guest is Christopher Raphael, the head of IU Bloomington's Music Informatics Program. And we're speaking about new ways to help computers better recognize and understand music. You mentioned that this is already kind of happening, and we've seen a performer with an iPad at their piano or on their stand or holding in their hands and making turn pages. But you're talking about something much more complex than that, an interface, if you like, where you mentioned just now getting real-time feedback from what would have been the printed page Mm -hmm. about something like how in tune you are, that kind of thing. So what would enable this? You know, with text, we have these character encodings. Uh, You know, the computer doesn't have an image that has the shape of an L or something like that. There's a, a specific character associated with L in every other letter. There are many possible symbolic representations. What we don't have is 
a large-scale library that has a lot of encoded music. One of my research interests is optical music recognition. This is the close cousin of optical character recognition, where you take pictures, images of printed music, and you try to translate them into this kind of symbolic form that would allow you to do all of these things that we can do with text, to query it or to analyze it or to accompany it. Now, just to kind of break this down a little bit more, this isn't the same thing as, say, scanning a piece of music into a PDF or some other format just so it can be transferred and read elsewhere. That we can do now, of course. This is something which is the computer's doing the reading and the understanding of all of these printed notes. But again, so that it can do what with it? It seems like there's, gosh, a lot of possibilities, but what are some of the things that you're most interested in? Well, I think the two biggest ones, I mentioned the digital music stand. I think that at some point electronic representations will will supplant old-style printed music. I, I have a library filled with missing parts, and I wonder if there are other musicians like this <laughs> or marked up in ways that embarrass me now. I suppose it's probably good to have a record of, of all of these things that we wrote when we were 15 or 16 years old now. Digital music stands would, you know, you would, if you're playing in, in your group, you can instantly access a new piece. We want to practice this. We just get it instantly. Nobody needs to go to the library. It would turn pages for you. It would give you all sorts of interesting feedback, what's going on in the short term or, you know, what your history is as a player over years. Another, I think, Maybe even or just as compelling example is the digital music library. At some point, I wonder if perhaps there will be uh, one library of the world that will contain all, well, this would be all the world's public domain music because there is, of course, a copyright issue there, but that would give people everywhere, uh, not people who are so fortunate as to be a member of Indiana University and have access to an absolutely first-rate music library, but people who live in places where there isn't something like that. So it would be universal access to a large library, instant access with all of the amenities that come with digital representations, not images, symbolic representations that allow one to search, for instance. And what sort of things would you be able to find in such a search? Just a turn of phrase? I think of some of the programs that can recognize melodies if you you have your smartphone and your playing a melody, but it's a, a little bit harder to tell that to a computer the other way around when mm-hmm. you're, what's what's the tune that goes like this? Right now, I can't think of too many things that can reliably do that if I'm sitting down at a computer. So is it things like that? Well, that's something that you could do. When you have music in digital format, there's just a whole host of things that can happen. You want to analyze music on a large scale. Uh, Maybe you want to do something like harmonic analysis. One of the things that has been so important in the last, oh, decade or, or decade and a half is the realization of the kinds of computational approaches you can take when you have large databases. This is what Google does so well. The way they make this happen, in part, is because there is an enormous database of documents that they deal with. But many other areas have sort of had the same recognition. I I, I used to work in speech recognition, and 
I remember uh, a person I worked with, Rich Schwartz, uh, still one of the most amazing people I've ever worked with, was describing the history of the field to me. And he talked about the things that made the biggest difference in speech recognition performance. And one of them was starting to work with large corpora. There aren't large corpora for music. Um, well, the largest corpus is, of course, the IMSLP, which is several hundred thousand images. And when you say online music library, that's probably what people would think of right now. Well, right. The IMSLP is wonderful, and I do not mean to demean it in any way. I make daily contact with it. But the thing that it cannot do is it's composed for the most part of images. So the way you get the musical information is you as a person need to look through that document and find what it is that you're looking for. You are the reader. If we could have an earlier stage where these things are represented in symbolic form, you could still see the music just as you're used to. You could format it in all sorts of different ways. You could do many useful things with it in addition to being able to read it. The technology for optical music recognition still has a ways to go. It's a difficult problem, and I expect it will take, oh, another couple decades before it's fully solved, but I think there's great promise there and will make a big contribution to musicians. Christopher Raphael professor of music informatics at Indiana University. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. Okay, so devil's advocate time, part one. You mentioned having the computer take over the duties of harmonic analysis. Mm -hmm. So the devil's advocate question might be, how will computerized musical analysis help humans make music better? Or in other words, is there a danger that people would just not understand music as thoroughly because that's being outsourced to faster minds? Oh, I think music will always be mostly the domain of humans. Um, where does music live? I mean, you can say music is about sound, I suppose, at some level, or notes at some level, but to me it's something that only lives in the ear or the mind. And without people to appreciate it and respond to it, who, what is there there? There's, there's no music without us to, to, to appreciate it, to be part of it. Perhaps Almost all or all of uh, the interesting applications of computing and music are about things that enable people to do things that they couldn't do otherwise. It's certainly not a matter of trying to replace the human. There's really not a whole lot of point in that. I remember a class I took once ages ago where a professor began the class by haughtily demanding that everyone write the definition of music. Mm -hmm. What is it? I guess that the professor's point was how unsatisfactory a lot of our answers were. If they were talking about compressions and rarefactions of air molecules from sound and things like that. And there were poetic answers like, you know, distilled feeling or something like that. But 
Yeah, it, it sounds like it's always going to need that final human filter as a performer and as an audience, as an understander of music. So, okay, well, I think that the devil is probably satisfied with that first devil's advocate question. One thing it seems that you wouldn't think a computer could do, but that your work has been very much about was something that I think began life as music plus one, uh, but has perhaps it morphed into the informatics philharmonic. Do I have the uh, the lineage correct? That, that's exactly right. Uh, the, the name, the informatics philharmonic, th- this came from Mimi Zweig, who is a member of the violin faculty here at the Jacobs School and a person I've worked with a, a great deal now at this point. I wished I'd thought of the informatics philharmonic because it's such great PR for my school and it's the perfect two-word description of what the research is about. Um, The informatics philharmonic is a computer program that plays the role of an orchestra or a musical ensemble that accompanies a live player. So the idea is think of a concerto, a piece of music for soloist and let's just say orchestra where the solo player plays the lead role. And they tell us in the orchestra, of course, it's a little more complicated than this, but you know we're supposed to follow the soloist. The role of the orchestra is to follow the soloist. So this is exactly what the info fill tries to do. Uh, we put a microphone next to uh, the instrument and sound comes into the computer. And we were talking a minute ago about the things that you can do with symbolic representations of music. Well, here is another important one, or at least important to me. If you have audio and you want to relate this to the score, for instance, you want to know when the various notes of the performance were sounded, this is a problem called score matching. You know, essentially you want to take the fabric of the audio and stretch it and warp it until it fits the score. So mm-hmm. you know where all of the notes live. This is something that you need a symbolic representation of music to do. The computer doesn't understand uh, an image of printed music. It really needs to appreciate the music in terms of notes or frequencies and rhythms. So that's something that comes immediately out of the symbolic representation. So back to the info fill. Uh, The sound comes into the computer, and because we have this symbolic representation of what the soloist is playing, we know what the notes are, and we can detect where they begin and understand things about rhythm and tempo and interpretation and more subtle nuance. And with this information, we predict how the future music will evolve. This is all about timing. We're not composing here. The program renders a warped version of the accompaniment to correspond to the timing that's exhibited by the live player. And this happens in real time. It all has to happen in real time because music happens in real time. So it would be disappointing if it were any other way. And the fully analog version of music, I think of just, say, one instrumentalist performing with one accompanist at a piano. And that already seems more than a little like magic, that you have one human who can follow the various ebbing and flowing of the tempo and the various expressive twists and turns of a soloist. And now here you would have a representation of an entire orchestra who is able to do that in real time. And But this isn't a totally new concept. It's just happening in a very different way. I think of... Uh, where you got the original name, music plus one, Mm -hmm. 
this predecessor, music minus one. So just so we're totally clear, what's the difference between the informatics philharmonic and music minus one of days gone by? Right. So music minus one uh, were these uh, wonderful recordings. I think they started maybe in the mid-50s or 60s or something like that. They're recordings of pieces of music missing the main player. That's the minus one part. So... The idea is you, as a player of the featured instrument, would put the record, and most of this happened even before the days of compact discs, uh, but they, they persist in compact discs and, and digital representations now. But and you, you put the, the recording on, and it often begins with a couple of warning clicks, and uh, they're off. Uh, the battle of wills begins. Uh, you, <laughs> No matter how well thought out or musical or historically correct or anything your interpretation is, the recording acts as if it doesn't hear you because, of course, it doesn't. Uh, so, you know, you might fight against this a little bit, but eventually you need to capitulate and follow the recording. First of all, there, there's certainly uh, great value in these things. There's a, a stage in musical development where you can learn a ton from playing along with the recording. It's, you know, one of your first experiences relating to an external source and taking some responsibility for the way the parts fit together. Learning something about intonation. It's not enough that your pitch is right, but it needs to be right relative to something else. And same with your rhythm and everything else. So one learns a lot from these, but I think the one-sentence uh, reduction is it, it is a battle of wills where the human always loses. <laughs> Music plus one, uh, or now the info fill, was meant to be an improvement on Music minus one. I have some history with applied mathematics, so I know that plus is better than minus, so music plus one is an improvement on music minus one. And the idea of music plus one, it, it's similar. It sort of starts out in the same way with a piece of music for soloist and accompaniment, where the role of the accompaniment is to follow. And this is an oversimplification, but this is one, you know, one of the basic beliefs of the way the program works. Only now... The audio is going to follow you rather than you following it. Uh, we understand what the player is doing as they're doing. We have a score for what they're playing. We know when the various notes are played. doesn't really seem to matter if they're very fast notes, which are, are awfully hard for a human to perceive. From the computer's point of view, this all just happens at this glacial rate. So the computer follows your progress through the score and plans an accompaniment that will follow this. It's really something, there are an awful lot of physical tasks that fall into this general framework. Walking is certainly like this. You know, you have a plan for how and where your steps are going to fall but things come up along the way. Uh, obstacles appear. You get a little bit closer. You see, ah, oh, the terrain is not exactly what I thought. So while you have this plan, the plan is continually evolving as you get more information. And you execute this evolving plan. Uh, and the, the accompaniment system, the informatics philharmonic, works exactly like this. So it knows the past well because we have score following. So it's heard these things that you've done. And enough to make a plan for how the local future, the immediate future, might evolve.
one, two, three notes in the future. But as we move in that direction, as, as the future evolves, we hear more from the soloist. And this should make us revise our opinion of how we need to play our part. So there's this constant evolving strategy or plan that the computer has. And I think if you think of, of walking or walking with obstacles, or, or any physical activity where the landscape is changing and you're making a plan and continually adapting your plan. That's sort of a good 20-second view of what the program does. Well, fortunately for us, we have a little show-and-tell situation here. And I want to describe for the listeners, all we have, besides you and me and a couple of microphones in this room, is an oboe and a laptop and a speaker. It's not like we had to go to your labs where some behemoth machine is waiting to do everything you've just described. And so I was wondering if it would be possible for you to demonstrate this by playing a little bit for us. First, I guess, in a version that the computer might expect, a version that's a little bit more akin to the music minus one, where you are being as obedient a performer as possible and then have a, a take two, so to speak, where you are rather more disobedient and you have to uh, force the computer to flex its muscles to be able to change and adapt in real time. Well, I would love to do this, of course. Um, I think my, my, my first time through, um, I don't know that if I will be obedient. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll play more or less the way I think the piece should go. Well, it's Mozart, uh, so he'd probably be mad if you were too obedient. <laughs> well, okay, but it, it's just us here. He's dead. So uh, at no point did your hands leave the oboe, just so, so everyone who's listening understands there. So if you were to play this again in a way that tested the limits a little bit more of your informatic philharmonic that's in the room with us. Okay, so I, I, I will do this again and, and differently in a couple different ways. 
people often wonder what happens if you play a wrong note. And of course we do that all the time. And I hope the serious musicians here will forgive me for doing this, but I'm going to play some wrong notes on purpose. And I'm going to ornament in an exaggerated sort of crazy way just to create some challenges for the programs listening. And in addition to that, I am going to make some rather extreme tempo changes. I'm even going to repeat a measure. I, there's some place where I have these uh, repeated 16th notes. Well, I'll look at Aaron here, <laughs> and uh, I will indicate that I'm about to repeat a measure. So, And it's uh, going to track that. It's going to stay with you. Even well, we'll see. Okay, well, let's find out. That is pretty extraordinary. For those who have just joined us, uh, I want to make sure that you know that we, <laughs> you have not just heard a chamber orchestra that's taking leave of their senses, but rather you've heard Christopher Raphael performing oboe with the Informatics Philharmonic, which is a program that he has developed over the last several years. And it's manifesting itself in this laptop with a speaker in this studio. And it adapted in real time to you changing uh, the, the tempo changes of what I really noticed. And in particular, if you would suddenly change the tempo and there'd be a, a momentary instrumental interlude, the program would stick with the last tempo that it thought you wanted. That's what I thought was really extraordinary. It didn't default back to, okay, this is what it's supposed to be, which you'd maybe even expect the program to do. It it, it followed. It took what you did as the moment-to-moment gospel, which was really fascinating. Okay, so you're going to start talking over my head probably really soon, I'm afraid, but how did you do this? Oh, my Well, there are two core parts to this. When I first became interested in musical applications, it was like an an accident. After I finished my PhD in my group, we were learning about speech recognition. In particular, we learned about this thing known as the hidden Markov model, which is sort of this amazing object. It's a mathematical model that's primarily used for recognizing things, for taking 
real data like speech or music or it could be an image like text and trying to understand what it is about, to find the letters or the notes or the words. Uh, or there, there are many other applications. And at the start, I was really not so serious about the application itself. I was just interested in finding a chance to explore this technology a little bit. So I thought, oh, score following is this natural way you could use the hidden Markov model. It's in a way like speech recognition, where rather than figuring out where the words are, there's a version of speech recognition that works with known words. So rather than finding where the words are, we're going to find where the notes are and work analogously from there. So it was maybe not so serious an experiment. It was really a way of trying to learn something about how this technology worked. But the good news was it worked terrifically well for music. It has natural real-time version. It's capable of learning automatically, which is a very important thing for anything that works with music. There's all of this very individual nuance in what a person does. And while you might learn something important by training from 20 good players, it isn't really the same as what you get from adapting to this particular individual. So the hidden Markov model just does all of these things so naturally. So the first thing that the program needs to do is to hear. Needs to listen. Needs yeah. to hear, right? Needs to listen. And this is done with the hidden Markov model. And, and this is all made possible because we have the score. The computer has the score to the piece of music. So it knows what all the notes are and the sequence that they come in and about how long each one should sound for. And the assumption is not that it's going to be exactly played this way as a robot would. The assumption is it'll be played like a, like a human does, with intentional and accidental departures from the score, with all sorts of things that were never written in. One of the nice things about the HMM, the Hidden Markov Model, is it adapts naturally. So given a couple examples, it learns how people play and can accommodate better. You're listening to Profiles. From WFIU, I'm Aaron Kane. I'm speaking with oboist and mathematician Christopher Raphael. Christopher Raphael is the head of IU Bloomington's Music Informatics program, and he's joined me in the WFIU studios to demonstrate the Informatics Philharmonic, or InfoPhil, a program that he's designed to accompany musicians and adapt to their performances in real time. What sort of feedback are you getting from the music education community at this point? Are people using this? Are they, are they finding it useful in their studies, or is it not really widely in circulation yet? Where, where are you with that? Well, we're starting to circulate this. Uh, so the, the most interesting thing that is going on now, we've established these collaborations with a number of conservatories in China. Folks in China are super positive about this for a, a number of reasons. Part of it is a cultural thing. Um, Europeans and Americans, I, I, I think it's fair to say that there is some suspicion or skepticism about the role of technology in music. It can be seen as an invasion into a sacred space. 
Not everyone shares this view, though. Uh, we, we've just found the Chinese have been super, super positive about this. We, we, we just set up a, a lab at the Shanghai Conservatory. Uh, we're in the process of setting up another one at uh, the Central Conservatory of Music, which is the top conservatory in China. And we have several other in progress. So we're thrilled to be getting such a warm reception from this. In the American world, I think it'd be fair to say that the response is mixed. Some people simply love what it is that we do. I mean, you know, the sort of the most, the most important thing that the InfoFill does is, to me, music making is about being immersed in the moment, not looking backward toward what went wrong or forward toward what might be a problem, but being right here all the time. You know, to have this feeling of, of telling a story or the feeling of singing. This is what music making is about. And it's so much easier if you are not imagining all of the other parts. If you have all of the surrounding texture and harmony and color and rhythm, it makes it so much easier to find that sense of immersion. And many, many folks, uh, some here at the School of Music, really seen the value of this technology, both, in, both for pedagogical reasons and because it's just fun to use. I suppose others are a little skeptical about it. To be fair, okay, so is, is this a solved problem? No, we still have some room to grow. The way I think about it is... Imagine how you would or how you should respond to somebody who invents a new instrument. So we have this new instrument and you play it in some crazy way with your nose or something like this. And it might sort of work, but it might take a couple generations to get the kinks out, to improve the technology, to really make it into a fine musical instrument. I think that's where we are with musical accompaniment systems now. So there is a very good start. There's a start that really makes musically satisfying results for many people in, in a variety of different contexts. But there's still room to grow here. You can go a long way by just trying to follow a player, which is what we do. The, 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 the info fills approach is to absorb musicality by osmosis. So if the human player demonstrates musicality and the program is able to follow accurately what the player does, then the program absorbs a certain amount of musicality and reflects that. Well, okay, that might be an okay zeroth order approximation, copying the player, but what a musician does is more complex than that, much more complex. When you interact with another player, even if you are playing primarily a following role, you know, of course, it isn't quite right to say that the soloist is a leader all the time because it's more complex than that. The role of leader and follower exchanges freely, and there's times when nobody is really clearly the leader or follower. But what an ensemble musician needs to do is partly follow, but also to have an internal musical agenda. There's something that the players are trying to make happen themselves, and they want to both make these things happen and to follow the soloist. And to some extent, these come into competition a little bit. They come into conflict. 
And I, I think finding a way to make sense of this from a mathematical point of view or a modeling point of view, this is just the heart of what remains to be solved. Really, really you know, a very simple example of this uh, is a problem I call the Suzuki Book One problem. <laughs> The Jacob School does every aspect of music uh, superbly, and one of these is pedagogy. Uh, my younger daughter went through the violin program here, and I, I like so much the way they start people out right at the beginning, playing with the pianist, learning to relate to another musician. The role of the Suzuki Book One, the five-year-old piano accompanist is very different from what the info fill tries to do. If you say the whole goal is to follow the five-year-old, you will not be doing the right thing at all. The accompanist for a young player needs to be a teacher as well as a follower. To follow and support when the player is making sense, but if they're losing tempo or doing something rather strange, the accompanist needs to sort of exert an external force to bring them back to, uh, to the mainstream. And to do this requires that the accompanist know more about music than the person they're trying to follow. I think of the Suzuki Book One problem as this wonderful, still unsolved problem for the musical accompaniment system. You have to know more. Uh, you, you can't just copy. You need to understand the music in a way, in, somehow be able to understand what makes sense and what doesn't, and at times follow and at times exert a force that brings a person to a more normal or more sensical way of doing things. I think from what you're telling me that even if you were confronted with the most humorless, traditional, cold court of musical public opinion, you'd be able to proudly say that you've learned a lot about musicianship in the process of creating this program. There's a lot that we don't know still. Uh, there, there's a great deal that we don't know. Just trying to make sense of what sorts of departures from, from metronomic playing? Well, first of all, one of the very strange things is metronomic playing can often be very difficult for the human musician to parse. It seems like it ought to be the very simplest. If your goal is just to convey the rhythm on the page and nothing more than that, it seems like uh, metronomic playing would be the way to do this. Music without any kind of emphasis is difficult for the human to parse, to make sense of. So there is really quite a bit of ground to cover in, in understanding musicality, or at least in a way that an accompaniment system can use. So you know, this, it's not just about changes in tempo, but it's you know, more generally about timing. What sorts of departures from metronomic playing make sense? What are the things about inflection or musical prosody, about stress and where it belongs and where it doesn't belong, that must be preserved? I think there's really a great deal, uh, or maybe everything, that is pretty much not understood about this. I mean, of course, musicians understand this all very well, but what we need is a translation from this musical knowledge into a more mathematical modeling so that we can make use of it in this context. 
I think of a quote, is it described to Louis Armstrong? I forget when asked, what is jazz? The response was, man, if you got to ask, you'll never know. Because <laughs> it seems that you're implying here that one of the uh, sort of mystical, untouchable concepts in musicianship, the idea of musical expression, that there's a lot of logic to it. I think maybe some people would bristle at that notion because it's so venerated. It, it, music wouldn't be what music is if we didn't take it personally. And yet, it seems like there's a lot that can be quantified here, maybe more so than people expect. Is that kind of consistent with what you're finding in your journey as you work with this? Yeah, yeah. Th- those are great points that you make, Aaron. You know, from your, your Louis Armstrong quote, if you have to ask, well, we have to ask. There is no way we can begin to do this kind of research if we are unwilling to ask questions about what kind of musicality makes sense, what kinds of deformations of timing achieve various musical effects, and to try to quantify this. One of the things that I've noticed about musicians, oh, Oh, often one, or occasionally one, will have a section of music where uh, the direction will be something like "Apia Cherry." It's your pleasure, freely. And uh, the goal here is usually to have an improvisatory feel to the music. And musicians imagine that they do this completely differently every time. And of course, there is variation from time to time. There's more commonality than there is variation, though. They do it differently the same way. Right. They do it. <laughs> we, we all, we all, it's just sort of this thing about human nature. We all have these things that we do in our lives and with our instruments. This is actually good news for the person who's trying to interact with a human musician. Yes, you know, you're right. The computer does prefer the world where everything is exactly the same every time. But nothing with the human will ever be like that. And if, if you're going to entertain the notion of making anything that's going to work with a human, you need to fully embrace this notion that the person will be different every time and you need to regard this as a virtue and you need to be able to accommodate this. So you, you know, that, that might be the bad news if you want to call it that. But when people are, are playing a piece of music, yes, there's, a, there, there's variation from time to time, but there's also a lot of commonality. And this is something that, that can be learned. And one of the main things that an accompaniment system needs to do is you know, constantly predicting the future. That's this thing of, of having the constantly evolving agenda. And you can predict so much better if you have a few examples. I mean, isn't that why people rehearse? The group needs to have some common understanding about how the piece is going to evolve, uh, where time will be taken and how much, and uh, to come to a common understanding there. And we, we do something like this with rehearsal. The, the nuts and bolts of it are completely different. Uh, we, we have a mathematical model for, for musical timing, and there, there are tweakables in this model, things that are unknown and are adapted to the player. And so... This is the way we learn from rehearsals. We, when part of it was about the listening. I mentioned that before. But also there's another part which is about understanding the musical timing and the kinds of things the player tends to do, what happens the same way every time, what could happen with a great deal of variation, learning these through a statistical model.
You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. Our guest is Christopher Raphael, professor of music informatics at Indiana University. Okay, I may be running away with this here, but I think that smarter people than I would agree that we're not too far from the so-called singularity, that we're kind of approaching the advent of true artificial intelligence. Do you ever think about it might be unlocking electronic musicianship that might be the key to this sort of adaptable way of thinking, this way of having expectations, but they can be broken and a machine can adapt. Is that a little bit too lofty? Am I thinking too far outside? Have I zoomed out too far here? Or is that part of what you do? Well, I have to be a little guarded in the answer to that. So keep in mind what the goal is here. People occasionally ask if uh, we're trying to make the computer feel or understand the nature of the aesthetic experience. I don't try to do this. It's not the thing that I care about. The whole thing is about creating this illusion for the person. We want to create an environment where the person can feel fully immersed in the music, But it is not necessary to do that for the computer to feel the pain of the dissonance or, you know, the sense of relaxation in a cadence. So we need to learn to do the things that we need to learn and to separate those from the ones that are less defined and less relevant. The computer needs to understand musicality from a statistical point of view, not from an empathy point of view. Wow, that implication is also interesting because I've had it described to me that for musicianship, there needs to be a certain level of dispassionate detachment so that one can get on with the business of music making, that if one gets completely caught up in the emotions or the aesthetics of a musical moment, they're not any good to the music. They're compromised. Mm -hmm. Uh, They are almost literally choked up and they can't perform as needed. So it seems that in an effort to make a machine musical, some of that is handed to you because there is perhaps a proclivity on the part of the machine to see things from a statistical point of view first. And you you feather in the things that would be interpreted by us, the human listeners, as musical understanding or passion or musicianship. Well, yes, you're right. We, we leverage the things that the computer does well. You know, the computer is very fast. When the person plays fast, you know, it just often seems like it's dizzying to the audience or the people who are listening. But it isn't fast for the computer. It, 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 it happens at a rather slow rate that is rather easy to interpret. The thing that is harder is to interpret it in the way that is intended. You know, the, the, the computer here is a really kind of literal timing where all of the onsets in the music occur. That's somewhat different from what was intended by the musician. Musicians often, you know, very clearly indicate a phrasing intent, you know, which you can think about in a really literal way. So as the accompanist, you need to be able to predict where future events are going to occur. It is often the case where the musician will indicate this very clearly. 
yet we struggle to build a model that can predict accurately in that environment, not yet having a sophisticated enough way to interpret what it is that we get. Finally, I would ask you to prognosticate a little bit. 30, 40, 50 years from now, what would you like to see a a music school look like in terms of integrating technology like what you're working on now in the studio or even in the concert hall? We've mentioned music stands already. Mm -hmm. We know that one. But uh, what is your fancy when combined with your experience, make you hope for? Well, uh, you mentioned the concert hall. I say that the InfoFill rehearsal-only system, what does that mean? I guess mostly that I think the best place for it is not the concert hall. It's at home or in your lessons. It's not really meant as a, a substitute for the traditional way of doing live performance, I, I look at it a different way. I mean, so, okay, so there are about 200 uh, student pianists in the School of Music here. And I think there are two piano concertos that are performed a year. So you can do the math pretty easily. The overwhelming majority of musicians are never getting to experience this uh, this really instructive, fulfilling, interesting, wonderful wonderful event, which is central to what it is that they're studying. I think that's too bad. Uh, so I think of this as, um, well, <laughs> you could, you, well, you, you know, there are, if there are, there's one soloist and, and 40 people in the orchestra, then maybe in a fair world, you might get that opportunity one out of 41 times. <laughs> and of course it isn't a fair world. So it does, you, maybe you play the trombone. It's not really about making the musical world more egalitarian, but this is one of the benefits of it. It allows everyone to become intimately familiar with what this experience is like, or a close facsimile of it. Well, Christopher Raphael, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a delight to have you here. It was such a pleasure to talk with you, Aaron. I really appreciate having the chance to come aboard. Christopher Raphael, head of the Music Informatics Program in the School of Informatics, Computing, and Engineering at Indiana University. He also holds appointments in the Cognitive Science Program, the Department of Statistics, and the Jacobs School of Music. I'm Aaron Kane. Thanks for listening. Copies of this and other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The producer is Aaron Kane. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash, The executive producer is John Bailey. Please join us next week for another edition of Profiles. Profiles.